0: Hello and welcome. I'm Brian Pace-Brega and you're listening to Building Business and Balance, Conversations with BPB. Yeah. I created this podcast for anyone looking for insight, mentorship and guidance from someone who's been there and back again on the road to success. I'm so excited to bring the most brilliant thought leaders and friends on air with me to get real about what it means to build business and balance and how you define your own success. I'm so excited to bring you this episode featuring a well-known dragon from CBC's Dragon's Den, Brett Wilson, a prairie boy turned lifelong dealmaker, successful entrepreneur, NHL team owner, and respected philanthropist. In this discussion, Brett walks me through his commendable business journey, his desire for better political leadership, and his own dealings with mental health. I've personally admired Brett since even before his Dragon Den days as an energy financier in Canada's oil patch, and I'm honoured to be able to share this conversation with all of you. His stories about success, mistakes, and balance are not ones you'll want to miss, he is living proof of how difficult times can make us that much stronger and more prepared for the greatness we all have an opportunity to be destined for. Take a listen as Brett and I dive into the concept of being a capitalist with a heart, our own journeys into more consciousness, and our thoughts on the future of the world's leadership.
1: I mean, I grew up in a small town in Saskatchewan. My dad sold used cars. My mom was a social worker. We sometimes say that's why I became a capitalist with a heart. I understood uh, what it took to sell, but I also understood what it took to give. The, um, probably the biggest challenge I see in the world right now is the extremes of the left and extremes of the right. And I humbly live in the middle. I really do have respect for both sides, but I don't have respect for people who won't debate, uh, discuss or review
0: Brett Wilson, uh, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me today. Uh, cheers. Um, <laughs> I got my mint tea that I picked up in, uh, in, in London um, and it looks like you got a coffee. Um, you know I've looked up to you a lot, Brett, because when I first started as a stockbroker uh, thirteen years ago in Vancouver, I remember oh. seeing certain press releases saying prairie merchants uh and i remember uh the insider reports being filed and i follow you and i buy some of the stocks um and then obviously following your your uh your public persona build on dragon's den uh which i also loved in my early 20s so it's an honor to
1: have you on today thank you so much for for taking the time i appreciate you tracking me down and uh, in particular the overlap in terms of our uh call it the evolution of our careers and uh I've done a little bit of reading on you, and uh, transparency, openness, and honesty is, uh, is a trait that uh, we could use more of in this world.
0: Thank you for saying that. Those are very kind words. Um, I was uh, I was digging around the internet um, last night and uh, this weekend, and something that really stood out to me uh, about you is your your humbleness. And I don't know mm. if it's something that uh, that's come with. With age or with you know with with maturity, but something I find a lot of young people today is um, a sense of knowing it all, uh, as opposed to you know taking a step back, listening. Um, and I don't know if the the knowing it all comes from a place of uh, you know insecurity or 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 what sort of point of 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 the the, the life's evolution where you gain maybe more confidence. Uh, And humbleness actually exudes where I've found that has been way better approach in my life to getting things done. But I see in you incredible humbleness. I'd like to just start with that character trait and how it's evolved for you. I appreciate that. I
1: mean, I grew up in a small town in Saskatchewan. My dad sold used cars. My mom was a social worker. We sometimes say that's why I became a capitalist with a heart. I understood uh, what it took to sell, but I also understood what it took to give. The um, Probably the biggest challenge I see in the world right now is the extremes of the left and extremes of the right. And I humbly live in the middle. I really do have respect for both sides, but I don't have respect for people who won't debate, uh, discuss, or review. And we see that, again, in both extremes in, 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 on so many topics. I'm a huge fan of, for example, Jason Kenney, our current premier, is attacked by the medical profession for not locking down. He's attacked by the medical profession for not opening up. And this is the medical profession, and both sides of the argument. So if the medical profession could agree, maybe the politicians wouldn't be vilified. So I watch the big picture. And in fact, I do a lot of speaking where I use the title of my talk is The Lost Art of Critical Thinking. And you don't need a big ego to think critically. You just need to be open and transparent. Some of the conversation we were having and that element of humble, I have no problem with people who have an ego that have earned it, but when you use your ego for false gain and, um, uh, I lose, I lose there. I just have no respect for that.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, Something that comes to me is, is um, you know, the political framework and not to get too into politics, but I've found that the last 30, 40, 50 years of capitalism evolving, and I love the term capitalism with a, with a heart. Uh, I think you should run with that because I think that's beautiful, um, is uh, um, the reward system of capitalism has actually captured a lot of the incredible leaders in the world because it's been a reward system that has given a incredible quality of life if you've been good at that that system that game where we find ourselves today is across the world is uh the emergence of populism the emergence of you know just it's almost like we're taking steps back from all this globalization that's happened um what do you think needs to change in the world from a leadership perspective for great talent and great leaders to actually be attracted to politics and leading countries as opposed to talented people, talented leaders, leading businesses and um, what a different
1: world we might have. You're you're capturing sort of the essence of one of the great challenges. And we've got a, a reversion to socialism, which, and again, I believe in all for one, one for all. But having said that, there is no money tree. Money doesn't grow on a tree, it's not free. So we still have to encourage what's good for the country. And I think sometimes what happens in socialism is that people focus entirely on themselves. They have no concern for their fellow human. And we're seeing that right now with the extremes of anti-vax, anti-mask, anti-lockdown, pro-lockdown, pro-mask, pro-vaccine. I mean, you've got people at such extremes and I happen to believe that we're going to be better off when we all pull on the rope together instead of in opposite directions. And that's been one of the big challenges. I think the point you drove at is that getting politicians who want to put up with this is challenging. You know, we've got in Canada a very socialist government who's basically buying votes with our money, and they're going to stay in place because who's not to argue with free, you know, there's talk of converting the the wage subsidy into a permanent program where everyone gets paid just to exist. Well, there's something about human nature that I think undermines uh, the goals and dreams of people if they don't have to work, if they don't have to wake up in the morning and do something to contribute first to their own overhead. You know, you've got to put food and uh, shelter in front of yourself and your family. And then after that, it's how do you contribute to the world? But this idea that you're just paid to sit doesn't work for me. So... There's a rambling dissertation of frustration. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can
0: sense it. I think it's, it's well articulated, but I I just want to dig a bit deeper. How how do you think we can get great leaders to lead countries? What what would have to what would have
1: to change? If you remember Dragon's Den, well, there was another dragon who's a shark named Kevin O'Leary. And Kevin's position was that Kevin. the guy, in, the guy in top, on top, the guy or girl on top, should be paid a market salary. And in his mind, that was 10 or $15 million, which is what the people at Onyx or you know one of the big U.S. private equity funds would be making. So pay what it's worth as opposed to treating it as a, you know, people make fun of our prime ministers and our premiers for making call it several hundred thousand dollars. And yet in the capital markets, in the real world, you know, you see businesses that report their earnings, top people are making five, 10, $15 million. So first of all, you want to attract the top people. You got to pay like the top people. And it's one thing to have an ego that says, Oh, I want to be the prime minister or the president or the premier or whatever, but it's another to take time out of your life. And it's a, five to eight year commitment because it usually takes a series of time to run and then a series of, of, uh, years to actually be in power. So you're looking at a, call it a 10 year cut out of your life. And we only have 40, 50 good years. So it's a pretty big commitment. So anyway, one is now, how are we going to get agreement to pay someone five or $10 million to sit in that role? We're not, it's that simple. And, uh, because then, cabinet should be worth a couple million. And my biggest challenge, you look at the cabinet we have in Canada right now, it's basically populated with incompetence. So the idea that I would pay them a, a private market wage to uh, fumble, you know, the, the Minister of Infrastructure admits that she said, we haven't done a very good job of tracking the 180 billion of capital that we've put out. We haven't done a very good job. You know, I could have an assistant do a better job than our government has done on tracking $180 billion. So it goes back to, how do you attract the best people as opposed to the political people? I used to joke about the fact that we should just say lawyers can't run, but... I have a lot of respect for <laughs> lots, lots of lawyers, lawyers <laughs> but yeah. But a lot of lawyers get involved. But legal training, yes. by the way, I think is one of the best training grounds for business or, or life that there is in terms of understanding how civil law, criminal law, how all these and you know, especially contract law, how these things all come together. But how to attract people to the highest roles? I struggle with that right now. I mean it's a great question, Brian. So thank you. Next your next question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> given, given that I couldn't, given I couldn't answer no, I, that one I, agree I, was, I, I struggle I, I, I
1: share your I share your concern
0: yeah but I I'd I like to hear Kevin's uh opinion too I think you've got the big banks CEOs or the big private equity guys making that kind of money and you want the best leadership pay market I, I like that um I would like to go back to your humble beginnings in Saskatchewan and uh saw that your dad and saw you actually get emotional on something, which was beautiful to Mm. see. And I think it's a very strong quality of a, of a, of a, of a good man and a strong man. When you talked about your dad and his sacrifices, um, what do you remember early days of, of with your family? And, and when did the ambition to have a higher quality of life trickle in for you? And, and if, as you look back at that, you know, talking to your younger self or to young people today, um, you know how how do you how do you start to cultivate and execute on that sort of um, that sort of ambition?
1: That's well, everyone's raised in a different way. Uh, I think we all underestimate the impact that our parents are having on us when we're young. Um, there's a, a great deal of learning done in the early days, and again, we just don't but as much respect or attention to that as we, as we probably should. It was not until I was in my 30s that I started looking back and I was starting to write a check to charity. I was starting to look at putting time into charity. And I'm going, I don't know how my mom and dad did this because everything I ever did when I was a kid was about mom and dad supporting causes, supporting the programs. Um, my dad My dad worked out of town, and yet he still was my coach, in baseball and football. And it never really dawned on me that dad drove an hour each way at night just to come back in and coach. I mean, we just accepted that, oh, dad's back. I never thought about the fact that he'd driven an hour or an hour and a half from wherever he was where he'd worked all day and then drove back to site so he could be in bed by midnight and get another day's work in. Um, you know, I still remember my parents coming home. Dad would come home, take off the leather shoes, put on the runners and go door to door for the Heart and Stroke Fund or the uh, or the um, Community Foundations. So those sort of things, as much as I didn't think about them when I was younger, impacted me greatly when I was older. And so looking back, as much as my dad wasn't a business success, he was certainly a father success, a family success, a friend success. And my own book is called Redefining. Success, which triggers that whole conversation. Because normally, and in fact, the title of the book was originally Redefining Success in a Wealth Obsessed World. Because that's where we define success. It's always based on how big a house on Beverly Hills do you have? And is it, you know, now is it 20 million, 30 million, 50 million? How big a car do you drive? How big is your office? How big is your holiday? It's all about. The trappings, the shallow and superficial trappings of success. And as you well know, I mean, you make five or 10 million, you're probably set for maybe forever depending on the lifestyle you choose. If you make five or 10 million, but decide you need a yacht and a private plane and to live in um, the Maldives, well, maybe you haven't made enough. But again, it comes back to adapting to what you've earned and made. So the real point is that, and there's, there's a model that I was shown many years ago by, uh, it was Merrill Lynch at the time, but they had a three bucket model. First bucket is your lifestyle. Save enough to have a lifestyle. Second, protect your lifestyle. That's your second bucket because things go wrong. But if you've protected your lifestyle and you have your lifestyle in the first two buckets, the third bucket is surplus. And by definition, if it's surplus, what do you need it for? Well, are you going to change the world or are you going to empower your children and your friends? Or are you going to create a sense of entitlement amongst them? So it really, when you start to take your wealth and divide it into the, call it three buckets, one is life, two is protecting that. So again, once it's protected, you don't have to worry about it. And whether that's 1 million, 10 million, 100 million, doesn't matter. It's whatever an individual chooses. But there is a surplus bucket. What do you do with the surplus bucket? When you die, you have two choices children, family, charity community. doesn't matter. Those are the only two choices. And I've joked from stage about putting thousand dollar bills in your, uh, in your uh, coffin, but then make sure that you don't get cremated because someone's going to want to dig you up. You can't take it with you. You can't. And so the question is what is your legacy? And um, that's probably one of the things that drives me the most is making sure that the relationship I enjoy with my children is one of empowerment not entitlement. Someone once told me that they'd never seen the children of wealth suffer less from affluenza than my family, and affluenza was a term that I absolutely adored because you see it. I mean, wherever you are in L.A., it's it abounds. But we see it in every community at every level, and you see it within every race, every every uh, every subset of uh, our nation. It just doesn't matter where you are; you see some sense of entitlement. And, I've worked pretty hard to uh, convert entitlement to empowerment.
0: Well, you say something very key. Thank you for that. You say something very key at the end uh, there, which is working hard. And um, where 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 would a young person start to build work ethic if they don't have it normally? And let's say it's a, a non-privileged situation. Yeah. Um, and we're, you know, again, maybe talking to your younger self. Um. How, how how do you how how do you find a strong work ethic? How do you get it? How how can you create it? You know what are the tools you can put in place or disciplines you can put in place?
1: Well, there's there's sort of there's a couple of stories that come with that hard work ethic. You know, is a hard work ethic working nine to five with discipline. Or is it working from 7 a.m. till 10 p.m. Um, with confusion, which is often the world of an entrepreneur? But so there's there's yeah. different Confused approaches. Chaos. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no. It's just uh, you fight one fire, then you fight the other fire. But um, yeah. so there, there's a bunch of those where I would go with this, Brian, is just to talk about setting priorities. And it took me a long time to think about my own priorities. And if you'd asked me in the height of my career what my priorities were, I would have said this year's earnings, (laughs) next year's earnings, my art collection, my car collection, my house collection. Again, all the shallow trappings of success.
0: External things. Yeah.
1: External Then I ended up and I went down and I actually ended up in an addiction treatment program called The Meadows, just outside of uh, Wickenburg, Arizona. And uh, it's certainly a place that's well known to many. But I went, I checked in for a month, stayed for a week. And at the end of the first week, my coach said, Brett, you're done. Go home. You know what you need to do. Go do it. I can't teach you more in three more weeks than what you've already learned in this week. And it was really about setting priorities. And the first priority has to be your health. Because without your physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, sexual, physical health, and again, lots of times you think just, oh, I'll go to my doctor. No, there's the mental and spiritual and emotional health that's absolutely critical to you being able to contribute to your second priority, which is family. So first priority is health, your own health. Second is your family. And everyone has their own challenges with family. Why? Because you're born into it. You're not, choosing it, it's given to you. And, you know, I have a, you know, a sister that I'm not close to another sister that I'm still working on my relationship with phenomenal relationship with my own three kids, their three husbands. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. Those are the things that matter, excuse me, to me is those relationships with family. But the third priority in my life is probably the one that drives me the most. And that's friends. I make friends out of my business partners. I make business partners out of my friends. I enjoy people. I have a large circle of close friends. I have a small circle of very, very close friends. And I would uh, say just by virtue of work, my son is now one of my closest friends as well. And it's a wonderful relationship. Beautiful. Um, And a handful and a handful of others. But but friends are the essence of life. For me, that's why we live is to is is to enjoy whether it's a golf game or a game of crib or going on a dog walk. I just don't care. It's spending time with friends and my staff are friends. Um, My business partners are friends. We there's a wide selection. So that's number one is health Two is family. Three is friends. Four is education. You got to have an education. And I don't care if you're a welder or a painter or or learning, you know, it just doesn't matter what you choose. You've got to learn something about it. And whether it's on the job or in online or in a program, I don't much care. But all of those lead to giving you options in life. That education is an option in life. And I appreciate that some people are just stuck. They just have trouble doing anything more. But they can also be happy if your needs are met in a fairly routine menial job, then happiness is your definition of what you're doing. And so you're gonna be fine. Number five is the career. You obviously have to learn and then have a career. And number six, we won't spend a lot of time on this, is community. And that's giving back to others. And I get a great kick out of doing community where I engage one, two, three, four, and five in terms of my health, my family, my friends. A perfect example, we go down every couple of years to Mexico to build homes. And as much as we're building I saw that on your video, yeah, beautiful. And it's an incredible experience, but it's mutually transformative. So it's partly about giving two or three families a small garage that they can call home. That's emotional. That's connecting. That's, that's very physical and spiritual in terms of that experience. But what's important, and it's probably misunderstood by many, I've heard people refer to it as, well, it's just rich people thinking they're making a difference. The most powerful team building experiences I have are when I take my family, my friends, and my staff to Mexico to build homes. Team building. I could not do better team building anywhere in the world than taking a group down to Mexico. So when we talk about mutually transformative, yes, three families get a home, but 50, 60 people get an experience. And it's a team building experience that I'm better off for. In my book, I actually have a chapter that's called charity is good business. And that rattles a few people whenever you talk about that. But yeah, I make a lot of money giving money away. It's because of relationships that are built in the way that the world unfolds. There's lots of, we could do lots of giving anonymously. Don't get me wrong. But often with that anonymous giving, it's family that knows it. And that's goodwill into itself. There's value in that. So there's a there's more. a rambling, rambling dissertation, but for the younger Brett, I wish I had focused on my setting priorities. Because once you have family, friends, or pardon me, your health, family, friends as your stated priorities, when you think about what you're doing on a given day, you're more likely to focus on what's good for you, your family, and your friends. I couldn't agree more.
0: Um, I get asked this a lot. Uh, you know, do you mix business with friends or friends with business? And and I've I've always said, of course, because if you can build a relationship with somebody and you can build underlying trust, then of course you can work with friends. Why, why, why wouldn't you, would you, would you agree with that? Do you have a different feeling on that? Or, or do you think if someone's starting out to build a business working with a friend, is that something that they, they should consider?
1: I think the greater risk is when you have employees that become friends the crossover can be sometimes a challenge because you want to maintain a friendly relationship. But to start with your first question, I am 10,000% behind making friends out of my partners. And in fact, I choose my partners based on my friendships. You know, if it's someone who I don't like in the why, why don't I like, was well, that their ethics their their the way they treat staff or family is that their vision is that their ego is it their uh, approach to community whatever that is if i don't want to be associated with them then why would i want to be a partner with them so if i don't want to be friends why would i want to be a partner if money is the only driver and hopefully we're all in the world that you know, at my stage in life, I, I do have an excess bucket. So I do have a choice about where I spend my time. There's a concept that I invented many years ago, and I'm sure there's a better technical term for it. But when two people do something together, right now, Brian and Brett, our brands rub. And brand rub is a very powerful tool. I worked very closely with a young musician named Brett Kissel. And he's oh, love his Brett Kissel. Musical, Oh, yeah. He's awesome. Well, as, as his musical career has boosted, We've done charity work together as my charity work has boosted. It's helped his music career as his music career has lifted. It's helped my charity work, you know, so we don't do any business together. I've never written a check that says Brett Kissel, but I've done so much with him. We've raised upwards of $10 million in the Calgary and Alberta communities. And goodwill abounds, but that's called brand rub. I still remember the first time I ever did a charity event when I was running First Energy, we partnered with a law firm named Bennett Jones. Bennett Jones knew the individuals at First Energy, but they never thought about the fact that we were a three to four month startup. So here we are marketing a charity event over the letterhead of Bennett Jones and First Energy. Did First Energy benefit from Brand Rub with Alberta's oldest law firm as our partner? Absolutely. Did Bennett Jones benefit from a bunch of upstart full of piss and vinegar investment bankers <laughs> who were trying to make a difference in the community? Absolutely. So there was a win-win there, but it wasn't two equals coming to the table, but it was two brands that were rubbing. So that goes back to when I'm looking at my business partners and whether it's a Jeff Connor or a Murray Edwards, or a Bruce Chernoff, or a John Brusa, and I'm naming people who are very important to me, I trust them. And I put trust as my highest relationship standard. It's above love. You can love people. There's lots of feelings of love in different ways. But if you love someone, don't trust them, you don't really want to be there. (laughs) That's probably your best. So I trust my business partners. And when I talk about trust, it's the value of a handshake. I don't need to contract. I've been, I've been working. I was on the phone before I, before I joined you with a partner. And we've had a business deal we're trying to paper for the last three months. And it just hasn't been a priority. And we only joke about it and getting it papered. Because at some point, one of us will get hit by a bus. And we should have it papered. But we have an understanding. <laughs> we have an understanding. We have no concern. So the handshake has already set. And it's in place. And it governs. And that's probably something. I remember my dad getting off the phone at night more than once selling a car. He sold a car over the phone. And it didn't dawn on me until much later in life. And I realized just a minute, the car wasn't there. The people weren't there. There's no signature on the paper on this little document. Because that's often when people sign the contract and then we've got a deal. No, handshake. That's a deal. Then we'll paper it. And I just a different approach to how relationships work. And for me, the world of business, and it's it's it stood me well.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. Couldn't agree with you more. Um, you mentioned some of the, you know, living legends of the oil patch and and many of your partners during those, you know, boom years of the 80s. And then, I don't know, maybe I'll butcher yep. this, but maybe early 2000s, maybe the two yep. big, big runs. Um, Absolutely. What what were the characteristics of those? Well, A, I'd love to hear more about, you know, what that was like being in the middle of, you know, being the, I think you were the youngest or one of the youngest and you were, um you're really leading the charge in the '80s, but then also as you see the markets today, it's the second part. Um, you know, what is your take on the markets today and all these you know kind of bubbles emerging? It seems like and the mispricing of most assets because of uh, you know questionable monetary policy. Um, so I'd mm-hmm. love to hear the sorry, it's two very you know different questions, but you know those boom times and, and maybe not bubbles but booms, and then and then how does it relate in your perception of Markets today?
1: Well, in terms of the oil and gas industry, which is where I was, I was learning, and my, my time in the 80s was really my education and my er, early years of my career. So it was in the early 90s when I got together with Edwards, Grafton, and Davidson, and we started First Energy. And the idea was that First Energy would be dedicated only to energy first and only energy. It was 15 to 20% of the market cap of the uh, entire uh, Toronto Stock Exchange, and there was nobody focused on energy. There was a couple of firms that were focused on Alberta, which meant mostly energy, but they did anything that came through the door that was Alberta-based. And we said, no, we want to be a cradle-to-grave relationship with the big investment or the big um, sorry working against the big investment banks but we want to be a cradle to grave relationship so whereas we might own a hundred percent of the relationship when he started a company we might own five percent of the relationship when they actually get sold because or do a big financing as the company grows that's fine but it's cradle to grave there was when we started at the time the 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 major investment dealers said unless you have a market cap of at least 100 or 200 million we we don't want to touch you. And the local firms basically said, we'll only work with you until you get too big for us. We were the first to say there is no line. If we can do research on you, we can provide calls. Um, as you know, you've got a trading desk. You've got equity capital markets. You've got research. You've got investment bankers with M&A ideas, uh, finance ideas. We want to be at all. So, we set it up, we were the only, ultimately three or four other firms followed us into that space and we happened to be in the energy sector just as consolidation and reduction of overhead. Through the 70s, 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s, it was common for oil companies to share the risk in a well. They'd uh, have five partners, 10 partners, and if it went well, they'd all be happy. If it didn't go well, they'd go, "Oh well. Well, it was really Guy Turcott, Murray Edwards, uh, Al Markin who said, let's bet on our own brains. And so they would do hundred percent projects. They would buy properties. And so the consolidation phase, which is what I really cut my teeth on, the consolidation phase of taking the whole oil and gas industry, and instead of having a thousand companies own a piece of a thousand assets, you had a hundred companies each owning an area. They became dominant players in an area, and the returns to the shareholders were extraordinary. And as much as people thought they were going to lose their jobs because of consolidation, they found out that they went from having menial paper pushing jobs to actually being able to be part of a business that was growing and thriving. That's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take that consolidation. So I happened to be there at the right times, as my partners did. So the 90s and the early 2000s were an extraordinary time to be in the energy sector. Um, by 2007, we had the U.S. capital markets implode in terms of its problems with um uh, mortgage-backed securities, and then we've had the volatility pre-COVID. We had volatility in oil prices. Post-COVID, we've had predictable volatility. By the way, we all thought that prices would drop when demand dropped, and we all thought that prices would come back when demand came back. I mean, go figure. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's pretty. <laughs> I mean, I put money into I put money where my mouth is on this one, and it worked out rather well. Um, but that goes to I've stayed close to the knitting. For me, that's energy. That's cannabis. That's real estate. It's power. It's sports. I mean, these are things that I felt comfortable with. Um, my track record in terms of inve- investing in new technology plays, I think I might be one for twenty, <laughs> and I'm not <laughs> sure that one paid Hopefully for the other that one was a hundred <laughs> Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> No, I mean, we've bounced around and I'm active in a few spaces that are still, that have potential, but I've really, that, that line uh, that someone invented, certainly wasn't me about stick to the knitting, stay focused. Mm. And then I tend to look at either investing in management teams or businesses that I know and understand. And generally, it's got to be a management team I know. I get inbound requests three to five times a day from people saying, I've got a great idea. It's a given that it's going to make money. It doesn't attract my interest. If it's not an industry that I know with people that I'm familiar with, or hopefully know, there's lots of people I've backed five and 10 times over the last 20 years, but that comes back to trust, comes back to the handshake.
0: Yep. Do you mind, um, just because I'm personally very interested in, in your success in sports. And actually I spent my 31st birthday at a Nashville Predators game with uh, a bunch of friends. I flew down and family. There's was about 20 of us. And we were in the bottom area, which I'd never experienced before in the rink, which is, you know, yep. unbelievable experience. Um, how did that deal come about, if you don't mind sharing? And 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 how did you look at that from a vent, like both, you know, maybe satisfying your passion for sport, but also as a good be- uh, business
1: venture opportunity? So in the early 2000s, I was in discussions with the Calgary Flames, looked at buying in the um The strike came in 2004, and that put a kibosh on the deal. They decided not to do anything. Then the strike was completed, and the value of the club doubled. And I said, ooh, nothing's changed in my mind. might have been wrong, but nothing's changed. So I backed away. And the partners at the Flames, great people. They're iconic Calgarians, um, iconic Canadians, great partners. But... Well, that little bit of process so it showed me how the league works in terms of its um, operating agreement and the indemnities and guarantees that are required. So I was familiar with it. Then in 2007, I happened to go down to Nashville, and I had a business partner as a musician that I'd gone down with. I organized going to a dinner party with a business group I belong to in YPO and uh, head to a dinner party. I've now been in Nashville three hours. I'm sitting, there's a hundred people in this house spread out on couches and kitchen and living room and dining room and whatever, but I'm sitting randomly with a guy. We start talking hockey and, uh, because I'm Canadian, why wouldn't we talk hockey? <laughs> and, uh, he, uh, asks if I've, uh, you know what role I've taken in hockey are you just a fan what do you do we get chatting and I said well I'd looked at buying into a club once but you know it's, it's an interesting experience but I love hockey I'm passionate about blah 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 and he made a comment he said are you still interested in buying into a club and I kind of looked at him and frowned a little bit and I said I could be why why he said my family is part of the new ownership group for the predators and we lost someone from the group this morning oh if you're my interested gosh. I can introduce you. So again, I've been in Nashville four hours at the outside when I shook hands with someone saying, I'm interested. I had lunch the next day with two of the other owners. They invited me in. It took about a year to paper it because we had some cross-border issues and approvals and guarantees. But I joined the club back in the early, the late 2000s, and um, it's been an extraordinary run. At one time, I was the third largest owner of the Predators. I've sold down a little bit over time, but um, it, uh, it was an extraordinary place to be. And the other story I should tell that's important is that I took a lot of grief in a good-natured way from friends over why the hell would you go into Nashville, which probably <laughs> won't survive. It's a southern city. They're not going to make it. You're going to lose your money and. the... I'm going, yeah, actually, if you ever went to a game in Nashville, which was your experience, the fan base, as much as it wasn't sold out, the fans that were there were extraordinary. You know, you'd see a two on one uh, approach, not a breakaway, but a two on one, and the fans would be standing. And I'll tell you right now, you can't get a Canadian out of their seats without a three on O in terms of a breakaway. <laughs> so it's just the enthusiasm, as much as it was naive, it was in, it was in, it was, um, It was empowering. There's a great word. But you just felt the energy of the people that were there. And I'll I will kind of flippantly point out that once I got into the owner's box, three three down was where Shania hung out. And then next door was Reba. Next to that was Blake. And at the very end was, you know, Carrie. And what was particularly amusing was the number of A-listers who sat in the lower arena. And you had Eric Church. I mean, awesome names, big names just sitting in the arena. And you know what? In Nashville, they were left alone. Someone might say a high five yeah. or something, but they, they, because they were a common sight, it wasn't that big a deal. And I know when we were as the ownership group, we were told, leave the people on either side alone <laughs> because there was inevitably some big names, but it wasn't even an issue. Because we were there to cheer for the Preds, and we had a lot of fun doing it. But no, the Preds really did turn a corner, went from being a uh, an also-ran Y to uh, one of the top teams in the league. We won the, uh, the President's Cup once. We uh, came second one game, game and a half away from winning uh, the Stanley Cup about three years ago. So it's been an extraordinary run. But the most important part, to jump ahead, ignore hockey, It's the off-ice experience. It's the relationship that the Preds have built with the state and the city and the community, the business leaders, the naming rights. All of the things that they've done that are non-hockey are nothing short of extraordinary. And I'll attribute that to a guy named Sean Henry, who was trained in the world of Barnum and Bailey and Ringling Brothers. Entertainment, entertainment, entertainment. We happen to use hockey as our entertainment tool, but the predators have always recognized that what they're delivering is entertainment. And that's from the moment you walk through the door. I've stood at the front door with the president. Nobody knows who he is. He has no profile handing out yellow scarves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it's, I I, I, I think I have mine
0: somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) I, um, I also think that you... So I'm glad you saw
1: you, other Preds, bottom line. Oh,
0: yeah. I loved it. On my 31st birthday, we had a great time. And, and not to mention, you know, um, I've got now friends that, you know, pre-COVID at least, uh, wanted to actually started having their bachelor and bachelorette parties in Nashville as opposed to Vegas. So I think you caught that city probably late 2000s at the right time where that city started to take off.
1: Well, there's been... Two five-star hotels, half a dozen four-star hotels built in the downtown around an arena that was built on the edge of the city. Well, it's been encapsulated by the third largest. That was the edge of the city? That, where the arena is, was the edge of downtown. It seems like it's now the center of it. Absolutely. But that's because Hmm. they built the third largest uh, um, conference center. In the United States, the third largest is right next to the arena. But when the arena was built, it was on the edge. Everything um, towards the uh, the ring road was industrial. It was light industrial, one story, two story. All got tore down, and now you've got Ritz-Carltons and you know on and the Omni and on and on and on. But this, uh, it really turned into something. So maybe it was a confluence of good fortune, the perfect storm. But as you point out, that city has now become the center of I, I was at the top floor of the Thompson Hotel one time, which is a has a big outdoor patio. Yeah. yeah. There was yeah. four there was four stags and stagettes underway at the same time up there. And the only reason I know there was four is every one of them approached me. Why? They were all from Toronto. Sorry, one was exactly. Montreal, three was Toronto. But exactly. they'd all come down to do their stag stag at, and I got recognized there. No, it's, it's, it's a wonderful city. It's a great attitude. It's profoundly religious. There's more churches yes. per square mile than most. Um, and I, you know, as much as I'm not active in any faith, I admire people who are of faith, and uh, especially those who use faith to improve their communities. And Nashville is a great Agreed. city.
0: Agreed. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, because my the most of my audience is you know let's say and I talk about it in, in in my upcoming book my quarter life crisis um, yeah. and as uh, as uh, you That's know a great title oh thank you as as young people come into this world um, just what what comes to mind for you what comes to your heart in terms of advice to young people in their early twenties on how to follow passion, how to work hard, how to make it work. You know, how, how would you do it? How would you do it if you were to wind back the clock but given
1: this state of the world today,
0: um, what would you leave people with? I
1: I think there's three things that we can all study and learn that make the world a better place. And by making the world a better place, we're going to be better off and it may help the individual find their passion. And that's the study of marketing the study of entrepreneurship, and the study of charity. And I think that could be done in grade three, grade six, grade nine, grade 12. And I don't care if you want to be a welder or a painter or a lawyer, you can study all of those things. Let's just take a quick minute. The study of marketing, most important marketing document you'll ever prepare is called your resume. And people sometimes underestimate that. I've seen five-page resumes from people who are 25 years old. No, one page, that's all you get. One page to tell the story. In fact, when we started First Energy, we were the first brokerage firm to do one-page research reports. Drove my research team nuts because they had 10 pages. I love to that. Share, I love that. But it that. was the one-page report.
0: Yeah, brilliant.
1: When those went out, you know, we'd sometimes have five one-pagers go out in the morning, but our one-pager became the standard. It became very much what people were looking for because they didn't want to read five pages of, and then the well was drilled and it looks like it'll be completed in a couple of weeks. No, it's the highest level. It's hard to write one page, it's easy to write three pages. So, but the understanding, but it comes back to marketing. And let's go back. I love standing on stage and saying, all right, which of you is active on? Instagram, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook. And then I, you know, hands are going up. And then I always throw in Tinder and all the hands come down. (laughs) Well, nobody on Tinder in this crowd? That's kind of odd. But my real point is it's not about using social media, it's about understanding social media. That's the marketing angle. Because if your competitors, your clients, your customers, your staff, your family are using social media and you're not, you better understand what the benefit is and the cost is of what they're doing in social media. So understanding the platforms. It's not about using them. It's about understanding them. Likewise, the first business plan you write is a marketing document. And they're all too long. And they're all wrong. The fact that they're too long and wrong is a shame. I get that they're wrong because everything pivots. And the most important thing you can do is understand that the business plan you write is your starting page. It's not your finishing page. It's not the final chapter in any way, shape, or form. But that's where, again, the study of marketing, the point of differentiation, understanding that a business card has six sides, not two. And then people are like, what do you mean six? Well, do you want thick, thin? Do you want the paper to be rough or smooth? Do you want the ink to be glossy? There's a lot of things to think about in a business card besides just, is it your title and your phone number? What are you doing? Um, I did get a business card from a guy in the States one time and it had his first name and it was Jeremy. And on the other side was his phone number. He said, what more do you need? <laughs> <laughs> and again, so that was memorable and marketing. That's not memorable. Isn't worth being done. So again, study of marketing, study of marketing. And I keep driving in. When I was doing my MBA, the cool kids studied finance and, uh, and accounting. And as an engineer by training, accounting and finance weren't difficult for me. I'm not gonna say they were easy, but it wasn't difficult. It was sort of my human Mm -hmm. nature. But the part that caught my eye was marketing, understanding the post-purchase dissonance where someone makes a purchase and then regrets it. How do you deal with that dissonance? What's the, and that's the purpose of branding, the purpose of marketing, the value of a trademark, the value of a logo. Those are things that are embossed in every business I'm involved with. And uh, I get a great kick out of even today, Prairie Wind and how we develop the word and the logo and what it looks like and how it resonates to the customers. Anyway, so marketing, two is the study of entrepreneurship. And for me, that isn't about studying human resources, accounting, and finance. It's about studying those who've gone before. And in Canada, it's some of the big names, and whether it's a Clay Riddell or Murray Edwards or a Frank Justra in, in Vancouver or some of the other, the Jimmy Pattisons, uh, the Irvings, the McCains, the, um, uh, the Richardsons in Winnipeg, those are big names. problem with those names is that the gap between you and I and them is huge. So why don't we start looking at stories like a John Sotodarius. And John Sotodarius means nothing to 99.999% of the population. But the example in the story, John and his cousin were flipping burgers in Kingston, Ontario, and they were tired of being shouted at by their uncle who owned the the restaurant that they were at. And they realized that they could probably evolve to feeding university and and, uh, trade school students late at night if they had a great, and these kids were Greek, and they came up with this idea of taking pitas and turning them into great late night food. Pita pit was invented by (laughs) a couple of guys flipping burgers. Ultimately, they built that into a chain of six 100 franchises. An extraordinary business. But again, that's a story of just real people doing real things. They lived in their car for the first year and a half because they couldn't afford to stay in a hotel when they went into Toronto to look after their pita pit in Toronto. They had two of them at one time. So the real point of this conversation is that the study of entrepreneurs people who've gone before there's whether it's reading books or watching stories or reading online you don't need a one-on-one mentor you've got role models i role modeled under uh, a lot of the stuff i didn't do uh, richard branson now, I've happened to have met him. I spent a weekend with him at, a, at his island on a, you know, he was raising money for something. And so I got invited down for that. But more importantly, I was watching Richard's steps. The use of marketing to promote businesses was always front and center for me. So the study of marketing, then the third part, or the pardon me, the study of entrepreneurship, the third, which is marketing, or is, pardon me, charity, community. People say you can't learn that. I completely disagree. And once again, it's looking at role models and examples of what other people have done. You know, we invented the idea in Calgary 25 years ago of having a charity event for clients. In other words, we would have a client event where we brought people out to mingle, but we put a charity angle on it. And at first, some of our partners were going, well, if we ask people for money, aren't they going to be offended? I said, well, if we tell them how much to give, they should be. But if we ask them to make <laughs> yeah. a donation that's meaningful to them, whether that's 20 bucks or 2000 bucks, I don't care. But if we ask them to make a donation in the amount of their choosing, meaningful to them, please be meaningful. But it's got to be a cause that we choose that's also meaningful to them. So we did a lot of work trying to build our relationships with clients. And we were the first in Canada that we know of to set up large-scale, 1,500 people, charity events where the event was free your charity check was your admission. It was invite only, so it wasn't open to the public in that sense, but it was all about building goodwill with our family and friends. And in Calgary, it became the norm. I can also tell you in other cities, I've actually had people saying, well, didn't you get screwed by people not writing meaningful checks? Yeah, but that's okay. There was enough large checks written that it overwhelmed them. And you know, on a given day, if someone's having, let's say a bad day, someone's sick, some business just went under, you know What was a meaningful check to them the day before is way more than meaningful the next day. And so just accept that people are making decisions. If we've asked for it to be meaningful, I never look at the lowest checks that have come into my events but I do look at the largest checks and I take the top 100 or the top 150 and send them a personal note. So you reinforce good behavior. (laughs) You ignore the bad behavior if there is such a thing. But again, I'm letting people make choices, but I appreciate, and I've got several people who write large checks and they're too busy to come to my events. Well, they're chasing the goodwill associated with what we're doing. So study marketing, study of entrepreneurship, study of charity. And I believe when you do all of that, you will inevitably Find your own passion. I
0: love it. I will leave it there. I know uh, I can see your busy uh, office behind you. Uh, they probably <laughs> need you. And I'm so thankful and uh, yeah, an immense gratitude for you, Brett. Uh, you're such a leader for Canadian entrepreneurs and not just Canadian, but, but um, you know, American entrepreneurs with your work down there. So thank you so, so much for, for spending the time with me today.
1: The only other advice is figure out how to get a little gray in your beard. And uh, a <laughs> little wisdom a mar- over here.
0: Little wisdom <laughs> it's a little bit here. of
1: marketing. It's a marketing <laughs> moment. Great. Anyway, you. I appreciate every moment you took to uh, invest in this conversation. So thank you.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. And uh, I'd love to play a game of uh, play play a game of crib with you one day because that's one of my favorite games.
1: <laughs> 15-2, 15-4, and there ain't, no more. There. <laughs> there ain't no more.
0: Thanks for listening to Building Business and Balance with me, Brian pace I hope you enjoyed the conversation and the wisdom of the guests I'm privileged to have met and worked with around the world. Subscribe to my series on iTunes for real, raw, and diverse discussions with thought leaders and pioneers on building business, balance, and defining your own success.